Hello and welcome back to our podcast. It's October, the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness and monsters, and we've got something a little bit special planned for you. Rather than our usual interviews, we're going to be bringing you our favourite scary stories from some of our favourite queer authors. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you to Halloween at an Earful of Queer. small New Jersey town, a lonely teen walking along a highway, one autumn evening meets the boy of his dreams, a boy who happens to have died decades ago and haunts the road. Awkward crushes, both bitter and sweet, lead him to face youthful dreams and childish fears in Steve Berman's classic YA novel Vintage. And tonight we're bringing you the tantalising first chapter, read by Jason Frazier. Friday bored that afternoon, I was thankful when Trace suggested we attend a funeral. The September weather gave the air a wonderful crispness. At any moment, I expected to shiver, even though I wore a thick wool suit borrowed from the vintage clothing shop where I worked. Above me, the sky was clear, except for a scattering of clouds, each a tired white against the blue. Trace sat on the headstone next to me and slipped off her shoes to wiggle black-stockinged feet. I looked at her, and felt slightly envious of how beautiful she was. Her long, black hair draped over her shoulders. She wore a sable-colored velvet dress. (sighs) Even her toenails were dark. I had polished them just days ago with a bottle of cheap lacquer called Evening's Hue. Except for a full face and the tips of her hands hidden deep into her sleeves, she might have been a shadow. She caught me staring at her and offered a crooked smile and whispered, Silly boy. I loved it when she called me that. No guy had ever mouthed such sweetness to me except in dreams. We both turned back to the funeral, a crowded affair down at the bottom of the cemetery slope. I counted over 20 people. Now and then, someone would glance over his or her shoulder, and I wondered what they thought of us. Some strange black sheep coming to pay last respects at a distance? Lost mourners? Nobody dies of consumption anymore, Trace's lips pouted. They call it TB these days, I said. Trace nodded. Yeah, but that doesn't carry the same, I don't know, weight. All the cool medical terms have been left behind. Egg, dropsy. She stretched her arms wide, threatening to unbalance herself. Doesn't that sound delicious? (laughs) Dropsy. What did he die from? I gestured toward the coffin below. Trace looked at the funeral and chewed on her lower lip. Looking for a good show, she would scan the obituaries like others read the movie section. Though she mentioned the service to me yesterday, for some reason I couldn't remember how the man had died. She shrugged and muttered, something modern. Her disappointment was obvious. A leaf, gone brown and desiccated a few weeks early, blew against the old loafers I wore. I gingerly ground it underfoot. I always loved the soft crackle of autumn leaves. Every month should be filled with large piles of ochre and chocolate and rust waiting to be pounced upon. I never asked if you were a pine or mahogany sort of guy. What? I was still distracted by thoughts of autumn. Trace sighed in mock annoyance. (sighs) Would you want to be laid out in a plain pinewood box or something like mahogany? Elegant with brass rails and all. I had never given my coffin much thought. (sighs) How many 17-year-olds spend their time visiting graveyards? And yet, I'd never envisioned my own funeral. 
She let me think for a few moments. She always knew exactly how much time I needed. I don't suppose they make them out of glass. They could lay me out like a fairy tale prince. She giggled. I mock sighed as if insulted. <sighs> we must have been some sight. There by the headstones, laughing loud enough to break the somber mood down below. As the mourners walked away to their boring sedans, I stood up and stretched. Another leaf, drifting on the breeze, blew past, and when I turned to follow its slow flight, I caught sight of a middle-aged man, dressed as somberly as the rest. He stood at the far corner of the cemetery, by the old mausoleums. Even at a distance, I could feel his eyes staring hard at me. When Trace took my arm, I jumped, then smiled, embarrassed. We headed down the hill, and I glanced over my shoulder. The strange man had disappeared, probably heading home himself. Trace's battered stanza waited for us on the street outside the cemetery gates. Stickers once covered the rear, but a few weeks ago, Trace grew bored with all the bands, sayings, and thoughts of the past year, and had me spray paint over them. The black paint stood out like a bruise against the gray primer of the rest of the car. Today was very quiet. She unlocked my door first. I guess she hadn't noticed the man staring at us. I slouched in the passenger seat, but quickly sat upright after remembering my suit was over 40 years old and expensive. I ran my hand down the trousers that I had carefully ironed hours ago. Not the funeral. The whole day has felt subdued. Worn out. She checked her lipstick in the rearview mirror. Still perfect. Her lips crimson, outlined by careful strokes of ebony liner. Something has to happen. Then make it happen, I said. You're better at that. Remember the burial we went to back in August? I closed my eyes and summoned up the memory. Was that the sweltering day when I thought I'd melt? Yes, you brought along the parasol you made. She laughed. I loved it. The black and purple lace you stitched on was mean. We drew so many stares. <laughs> they were jealous, I said with a chuckle. But I knew no one was really jealous of me. Trace earned their attention. Not me. On the ride back to Trace's house, I kept my window open and let my hand feel the rush of the passing air. Her car threatened to stall at stoplights, so she never slowed at yellow lights and sped through intersections. She bragged about the points she'd accrued for speeding, like misbehaving behind the wheel was a game. Her small house sat along a side street that, in a few years, would be overtaken by the bad part of town. For now, it remained in suburban limbo, with a lawn blemished by brown patches and fallen shingles. She unlocked the front door and said under her breath, We're home, Mike. Trace believed her house was haunted. If the ghost of her older brother did exist, he had yet to answer back. The day's mail littered the worn carpet. We walked through the sparse living room and past the kitchen to Trace's room in the back. On her door hung a beaten copper hand, a good luck charm she'd picked up at some witchcraft store. In the center of the palm was an eye, the pupil in a regular piece of polished turquoise. Supposedly, it attracted good luck. Inside, a queen-size waterbed dominated the room, and both of us fell onto the comforter and bounced, hearing the heavy smack of the water underneath. Atop the headboard, I spotted a dog-eared paperback of Tithe, a gilded lighter, and a pack of her favorite bitty cigarettes, chocolate-flavored. They were hard to come by. She had to drive into Philadelphia for them, so she rationed them out, a couple each day. She reached for the pack and shook out two of the small, leaf-wrapped cigarettes. I grabbed the lighter. 
The cheap metal felt cool in my hand. What are you doing tonight? I took simple pleasure in lighting the bitty she put in her mouth, then touched mine to hers. The tips glowed a cheerful orange. With my first inhale, decadent sweet smoke blackened my throat and lungs. The warning on the pack comforted my masochistic streak. She puffed with gentle pools, sending scented wisps into the air. I loaned out my copy of the latest Weird NJ to Kim, and now she's dying to explore. Pass. Normally, the thought of wandering around abandoned buildings and deserted highways looking for a cheap scare would have been exciting, but I was tired of Kim's bitchy antics. She drained the fun out of everything. Let's just hang out, sip cider, and talk. Her lips turned down. <sighs> you have too many quiet nights. You need to get laid. I didn't need to be reminded of my loserdom, having yet to go out on a single date or even kiss another boy. Hunting down urban legends won't find me a boy. I drew deeply on the bitty, making the end flare for a second before turning to ash, but the taste had grown sour on my tongue. Besides, none of the local guys would want me. She'd heard this complaint countless times. That's not true. You're pretty. She lightly tugged at my red-tipped bangs. The compliment made me uncomfortable. As my best friend, she had to lie. Trace finished her bitty, Baby joints, she once called them, and twisted back to grind the remains into the ceramic ashtray shaped like a Halloween cat's head. Mine followed a moment later. Stop by the shop tomorrow, I said, rising from the bed. You can tell me how you wasted your night. She rolled her eyes and blew me a kiss goodbye. Passing the kitchen, I saw Trace's younger brother sitting by the table in the dark. He seemed lost in a trance, just staring off into space with a forgotten sandwich on a plate in front of him. The second Mike was an odd kid. Maybe being named after your dead older brother did that, and wearing so many of his hand-me-downs. He wasn't a bad kid, but he had the knack of being annoying and underfoot. My foot creaked on the linoleum floor and broke his spell. Second Mike turned suddenly to see me standing in the doorway. I nodded, feeling oddly embarrassed by the intensity of his gaze. Instead of his usual chatter, he lifted a hand and waved slightly. The gesture so devoid of emotion, made me shudder. I would have gone back to my aunt's house, but my hungry stomach demanded attention, and Aunt Jan's cooking was notorious. The diner a couple of miles from Trace's place was cheap. The few dollars I had left from my last paycheck would more than buy me dinner, and I savored the chance to walk for hours along a quiet highway. The temperature dropped as the autumn sun began to set behind the trees, and by the time I reached the diner, I had decided to become a basement recluse savant by age 30, surrounded by stacks of newspapers with crazed penciled notes in the margins. I wanted to celebrate my fate by warming my hands around a cup of coffee. By the time I finished a feta omelet, some toast, and my second cup, I had changed my mind. Maybe I'd reach 33 and then make a spectacular end with a bandolier of fireworks. On the walk back, I'd glance up at the clear night sky and imagine the explosions. Very purple blasts came to mind. The summer when I was ten, I spent hours lying in my folks' backyard, staring up at the stars and making up new names for the constellations. I wish I could remember them. I reached where the highway cuts through the woodlands. A light wind rustled branches. I kicked aside a beer bottle, sending it rolling to the other side of the road. It came rolling back. I stopped, shivering. I looked around and noticed for the first time how ominous the woods on either side looked. Just the wind. 
If Trace was with me, she'd laugh at how shaken I was. I had turned down the chance to see the secret mysteries of Jersey, only to find myself all alone in the perfect setting for any number of horror movies. I gave the bottle a savage kick, sending it off the road. The sound patched my fear. Then I heard the footfalls. So light I had to stand still and listen hard, while hoping I heard wrong. But no. They came closer, telling myself I was all alone, that no one else would be dumb enough to be walking back to town all by themselves. I turned around. I was wrong. The guy walked with his head down, as if mindful of the wind. He looked a year or two older than me, maybe still in high school. His hands were in his pants pockets, and his sweater didn't look warm enough. Even when he came closer, he kept his gaze down. He must have been walking to or from a costume party, an early one as Halloween was weeks away. His sweater was quite the find, a green and rust-brown wool button-down with a white applique C. You rarely see letter sweaters anymore. His athletic build screamed, I earn this. The pants and shoes matched the decade, too. Slightly worn khakis that ended in actual penny loafers. Since he still ignored me, I guessed he must be in a foul mood. I was tempted to ask where he'd bought the clothes, but bothering a total stranger out in the middle of nowhere would be stupid. I didn't relish the thought of getting gay bashed. When he walked past me, I saw his face. I wanted to run after him and catch another glimpse. He was breathtaking. Smooth good looks and a sharp, upturned nose, and his crew-cut blonde hair left me wondering how it would feel if my fingers brushed over the top of his head. He acted oblivious to my existence. I don't know why I called out to him. Cool clothes! I had never before been courageous enough around guys I thought half as beautiful as he was. Maybe the risk of provoking him was too much to resist. The wind made my voice too loud. He stopped. I came close to running away. I thought he'd keep walking, but he turned around. Encouraged, I took a few steps closer. I could not look away from him. It's cold out. I hugged myself for emphasis. He nodded. The strong silent type made me nervous. Boys made me nervous. I didn't know what to say, so I focused on something I knew. I have to know. Where'd you get the clothes? My clothes? His eyes were icy blue. Yeah, they're hard to find, especially in such great shape. I work at a vintage shop in town. I've always had these. At the time, I didn't even think it an odd response. I just wanted to keep him talking with me. I noticed the small embroidered Josh in gold script on the sweater. Well, you should see some of the things we have down at the shop. He glanced at me, only briefly. I don't remember you from the party. Party? I shook my head. Sorry, wasn't there. I caught a faint whiff of cologne and beer before the next gust took them away from me. His odd, not quite detached manner made me suspect he might be drunk. Up ahead near Norris Street, I saw a glow. A car turned onto the highway approaching us. Better move. I walked onto the dirt shoulder. I didn't hear footsteps follow mine. When I turned around, he was gone. Gone. Confused, I looked around but I didn't see him. The headlights grew brighter and brighter, painful against the dark. The car streaked past. I called out his name a couple of times and wandered back and forth, sure that I had somehow missed him. Nothing. I tried to take pleasure in telling myself I had become crazy enough to imagine weird boys. 
The porch light at my aunt's house was a welcome sight. I was exhausted, confused, and still shaken over seeing someone vanish. The distant sound of the television came from the den, and I walked in on my aunt sitting on the couch working on some paperwork spread out on the coffee table before her. She turned and smiled at me. Hey, kiddo. I gave a wave and went to my room. I had yet to decorate the walls, and the closet and dresser seemed almost empty. At my folks' house, my room had been a pleasing chaos. Hours of nailing and gluing strings of white lights from the ceiling like fake stars. Power cords crisscrossed the corners. I had scribbled over the wallpaper with charcoal and crayons when bored, gouged into the sheetrock with knives when angry. I took my keys out of the jacket's inner pocket. They were on this cool toy I bought last October, a cheap plastic coffin with R.I.P. in raised letters on the clear top. Inside rattled a tiny skeleton. When I had decorated Trace's nails, I also blackened the key to my folks' house. It became the forbidden key, the one I'd never use again. If I hadn't run away, my folks would have thrown me out. Keeping the key served as a bitter reminder in case I weakened and felt homesick. I hadn't yet. The other keys, so bright and shiny, worked the locks in my aunt's front door. She didn't know why I left home. I made her swear not to ask my folks. I didn't know how she'd react to learning I was gay, yet I regretted keeping secrets from her. She was my favorite relative and deserved better. I fingered the old-fashioned key next to the ones to the shop where I worked. Trace had bought the snaggletoothed cabinet key, all dark with age, for me at the local flea market as a welcome-to-town present this past summer. I had tossed them onto the dresser top and hung up the jacket when my aunt knocked on the door. Come on in. She opened it only wide enough to stick her head inside. Did you eat dinner? I could throw something together for you. No thanks. I had a bite. She nodded. Okay. I'm headed out. Anything interesting? Aunt Jan shrugged. Maybe, if I ever dye my hair like you do, she said with a wink. She tugged at a loose curl, stared at the gray edges, and sighed. <sighs> no, I'm just going down to Atlantic City to lose some money. <laughs> Slot junkie. I'm a professional. She matched my grin with a laugh. I put away the borrowed suit, checking the trouser cuffs for smudges and the sleeves for wear. I had to take it back to the shop the next day. In the bathroom, I washed off the dark eyeliner Trace had applied for me and stared at myself. All bony, average skin, bleh face. Why would a boy bother with me? Back in my room, I took out the hematite rod dangling from my left ear and opened the junk drawer of the dresser. Pushing aside the bottles of nail polish, too many black and not enough weird colors, and the pile of dark ribbons and fortune cookie slips, I found the tin in which I kept the little bit of jewelry I sometimes wore. The earring looked lonesome next to a heavy necklace shedding cheap red enamel from every link and some 12-gauge studs. As I slipped under the covers, my thoughts strayed back to that empty highway and the strange but beautiful boy I had met that night. Ghosts aren't real. So then what happened? Try as I might to stay awake and think of an answer, I could not resist sleep. That was the first chapter of Vintage by Steve Berman, read by Jason Frazier. Uh, if you haven't read Vintage, you should really fix that pretty much immediately, while the night's dark and perfect for just this book. Uh, you can get it from Lethe Press in paperback and also audiobook. Uh, links will be in the description. And while you're at it, you should also check out Steve's other collections, uh, Trists, Second Thoughts, and uh, most notably, if you enjoyed Vintage in particular, uh, Red Caps, his fantastic collection of young adult stories. 
Uh, Steve's also a prolific editor of Queer Fiction and runs Queer Press Lathe, uh, so if you'd like to find out more about all of that, you can go to steveberman.com or uh, at steveberman on Twitter or Lathe Press Books um, or at Lathe Press on Twitter. Uh, plus, he was the first ever interview guest of If the Queer, so if you enjoyed this, do feel free to delve back a couple of episodes. Playing you out tonight, we're delighted to bring you a short excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers. Uh, it's a wonderful collection combining historical fact and unearthly encounters to explore eerie locales with a queer bent. Behind the shadows and doors of societal homophobia hide pink phantoms and lavender apparitions in cities and towns spread across the globe. From haunted bars in New Orleans to an old theatre in London, this guide encompasses the other side of the supernatural. It's out now from Lethe Press in paperback and audiobook, and it really is a great collection, so do check it out if you like what's coming up. Uh, or go seek out more about Ken Summers at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. Somerville, Georgia. A man's home is his castle. The corpsewood murders... Dead Horse Road hardly sounds like a dreamland, yet for two men, this was where their dreams both came true and ended. The peaceful serenity has returned to Taylor Ridge in the southern Appalachian Mountains, yet the memories haunting the landscape still can be felt by those daring enough to venture deep into the wilderness. For over twenty years, ghosts have wandered the woods in Chattahoochee National Forest outside of Somerville, Georgia. Two lost souls, the victims of a brutal robbery, stand guard over the ruins of their brick mansion, known as Corpsewood Manor. Dr. Charles Scudder was the widowed father of four boys living in the urban jungle of a decaying neighborhood in Chicago's west side. He was a professor of pharmacology at Loyola University, specializing in psychopharmacology, the effects of drugs on the human mind. The instructor lived with his two dogs and a man named Joseph Odom. Scudder had taken a chance on the man 17 years prior, Joseph, who was described as feminine and quiet by his friends, had led a very turbulent life, spending time in trouble with the law after dropping out of school following the fifth grade. Yet for almost two decades, he had been a loyal companion and housekeeper, helping Scudder raise his children and cooking immaculate meals fit for a king. As university politics became decidedly unsettling, Scudder dreamt of escaping to the countryside, the conveniences of modern life didn't justify the stress and chaos in his world. An inheritance had fallen into his lap during the mid-1970s, and while the monthly stipend was far from luxurious, it would be enough to scrape by with a simpler lifestyle. Charles Scudder had a plan. The duo decided that their lives would be better far away from the modern world. Scudder searched for property until he happened upon 40 acres along Taylor Ridge in northern Georgia. The weather was pleasantly mild, water was bountiful, and air was clean and sweet. A national forest surrounded this part of the Appalachian foothills, so there would be no neighbors for miles. As soon as he set foot on the property, Charles knew it was perfect. He returned home, purchased the land, and resigned his department position on his 50th birthday. His house was sold along with most of his belongings, and Dr. Scudder headed back with Odom to their pristine bit of earth. The decaying carcass of a horse greeted them on the first day of their arrival at the entrance to their new driveway. 
the couple named the trail Dead Horse Road in homage. Their temporary living quarters consisted of a camper brought with them from Chicago. Over the first two years, they slowly built their brick mansion on the mountain. Scudder, who had previously never laid a brick in his lifetime, relished in the small victories and marked each small achievement with celebration. Their first winter was met with dormant trees ominously covering the hillside. The dead appearance of the barren oaks and maples gave a name to their newfound homeland, Corpsewood. Life as a pioneer was simple and sweet, and the monthly income from their joint savings account provided just enough to survive. A well supplied them with clean water, and a brick-enclosed chemical toilet served as an outhouse. They grew most of their own food, relying on a small kerosene refrigerator and wood-burning stove for their culinary needs. A vibrant rose garden graced the side of the house, allowing the scent of roses to waft into the home. A small vineyard on the property produced grapes for a potent muscatel wine shared with friends and visitors. Perched atop the second-story veranda sat a pink-painted gargoyle, standing guard over the grounds. A three-story chicken house was constructed near the house, the top floor of which was painted pink and dubbed the Pink Room, serving as a socializing area for guests and the occasional sexual rendezvous. Plans were made to construct a swimming pool in the yard. A sign was placed on a poplar tree at the entrance to their domicile, written in an old English scroll, Beware of the Thing, presumably an allusion to the owner's 150-pound canines. Charles often delighted passers-by with music from his gold harp. Though he was never classically trained, he had taught himself to play the instrument, and even composed his own haunting melodies. His beautiful hypnotic melodies could be heard throughout the hills. Life was idyllic. It wasn't until two strangers entered their world that the solitude would end forever. In November of 1982, Kenneth Avery Brock moved into the Halls Valley trailer of a 30-year-old unemployed construction worker by the name of Samuel Tony West. The 17-year-old part-time truck driver told West the tale of queer devil worshippers living in the isolated country. Brock first met the couple while hunting deer on their property. He befriended them and spent many occasions drinking their homemade wine. Their relationship soon escalated. Brock may have become intimately involved with the men on numerous occasions. Others speculate that Brock attempted to initiate a threesome with the couple, but was denied. Scudder and Odom's relaxed demeanor and effortless existence gave Brock the false impression that Scudder and Odom stockpiled an immense fortune. The vivid mind of 17-year-old Brock convinced Tony West they could become wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. In a small town where rumors and gossip become gospel, Brock and West fell under the spell, blinded by greed. Disillusioned by their downtrodden lives, the duo hatched a plot to rob the couple of their fortune and run away, free to live their lives as they had always dreamed. After hatching the burglary plan with West, Brock's visits took on new meaning. In November of 1982, he visited the Castle in the Woods several times in an attempt to study the layout of the house. Unfortunately, his sexual encounters with Scudder and Odom were limited to the Pink Room, and he was never granted entry into Corpsewood Manor. On the evening of December 12, 1982, the plan was set into motion. Brock made a stop at his mother's trailer to pick up a 22 caliber Remington automatic rifle to use rabbit hunting. The duo stopped to visit Joey Wells and offered to take him and his date, Teresa Hudgens, out joyriding. 
West and Brock suggested a visit to Corpsewood to drink some of their wine. While Joey was thrilled with the notion of free alcohol, Teresa was hesitant to meet the devil worshippers. Convinced by the others that it would be fun, she finally relented. The four individuals slowly traveled through the hilly roads of Taylor Ridge, inhaling a combination of paint thinner, alcohol, and glue called Toodaloo. Teresa peered down at the rifle tucked between the front seats. Charles greeted his unannounced visitors and bummed a cigarette for Odom, who was in the kitchen cleaning up after supper. Their visitors climbed the forty-foot ladder to the pink room, accompanied by Scudder. Wine was passed, and the gathering became merry. Shortly thereafter, Brock stepped out to his car to get more toodaloo. He reappeared with his rifle minutes later, returning to his seat on the mattress. Charles Scudder stifled a giggle. Bang, bang, he uttered, amused in his mild intoxication. When Scudder stood to adjust a lantern, Brock leapt into action. He grabbed the former professor by the hair, slid a knife from out of his military boot, and pressed it against Scudder's throat. Brock demanded money and tossed the professor onto the mattress. He cut strips of pin cloth from the sheets and bound Scudder in his heavy coat. Weston Hudgens were terrified and ran to the car, but the engine refused to start. As they headed back to the pink room, they could hear Brock's desperate, angry demands. West stood up and handed Brock the rifle. Odom was interrupted in the kitchen by Brock ordering him out of the house. He looked up toward the doorway as Brock fired four rounds into Odom. Several more finished off the Mastiffs, which never moved from their comfortable spot beside the wood stove. Brock returned to the pink room and led Scudder back to the house. The professor was ushered into the house where the gruesome scene met his eyes. As he stood over the bodies of his deceased lover and beloved Mastiffs, a muffled moan escaped from beneath his gag. He knew the end was near. Brock led him into the library, pulled down the pink gag in Scudder's mouth, and sat him in a chair. Charles stood one final time and shuffled in his bound feet toward Odom's body. West demanded that he stop. As he continued his slow movement, intently gazing at Odom's corpse, Charles Scudder uttered his final words. I asked for this. West shot Scudder in the face at close range. Falling to his knees, Charles attempted to speak and stand. West fired again, sending the professor reeling backward into the bookcase. Scudder gurgled out unintelligible sounds as West fired three more shots into Scudder's head. West and Brock ransacked the house searching for the hidden fortune. They left with only a handful of dimes and nickels, bits of jewelry, silver candelabras, and a gold-plated dagger. The gold harp was too large to take with them. Less than two hours after arriving, the visitors left, splitting up between West's red 1970 AMC Javelin and Scudder's black CJ-5 Jeep with white pentacles painted on the doors. Raymond Williams visited Corpsewood two days later to notify the couple of the passing of a friend in Rome, Georgia. He noticed bullet holes in the green kitchen door and called the police. West and Brock fled, but each was apprehended without incident. During West's confession to Chattanooga County Sheriff Tony Gilliland, the suspect stated, All I can say is they were devils, and I killed them. That's how I feel about it. As a trial went underway, Scudder and Odom were labeled homosexual devil worshippers. Being reclusive made the victims easy targets for bigotry and hatred. Scudder had joined the Church of Satan to see what it was like, according to his friend Raymond Williams. While the inverted pentagrams are a common symbol in satanic imagery, 
The religion itself does not idolize Satan. Levian, or symbolic Satanism, as practiced by the Church of Satan, does not worship a deity. They worship the self. The devil is used as a symbol of mankind's inner desires and is closely related to atheism. While the victims did possess some occult items and satanic artifacts, their religious beliefs did not affect their character. Defense attorneys argued that the two murderers were given wine laced with LSD by Scudder, yet no evidence supported these claims. While on staff at the Strick School of Medicine at Loyola, the victim had been the assistant director of the Institute for the Study of Mind, Drugs, and Behavior. Three vials of LSD-25 were found in a cigar box in Scudder's desk. The defense attempted to prove that the murderers had been drugged and were temporarily insane at the time of the crimes, yet no trace of hallucinogenic drugs was found in the wine at the scene. Brock attempted suicide while behind bars, presumably from the guilt of what he had carried out. The trial resulted in a conviction on all counts and sentenced to three consecutive life terms. He is currently serving out his sentence in Georgia State Prison. Samuel T. West was similarly convicted of the double homicide and sentenced to die in the electric chair. The death decree was replaced, and he is currently serving his life sentence at Augusta State Medical Prison. Joseph Odom's ashes were scattered in the Rose Garden near Corpsewood Manor at a small ceremony. Scudder's body was taken back to his home of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to be buried at the request of his sister. What remains of Corpsewood Manor today is a few fragments of masonry wall and stone. Subsequent fires and other vandalistic acts have reduced the home to a skeletal frame and rubble. It remains as a curiosity and testament to the brutal slayings, yet there are many who believe it is occupied by the dead. In the weeks following the grisly murders, supernatural events began to occur. Police and investigators at the scene claimed to have felt an eerie presence during the initial investigation. Though the stench of death filled the house, what authorities experienced could only be described as paranormal. For those unwise enough to take a small souvenir from the ruins, bad luck has followed. One visitor reportedly exhumed some mountain laurel from the property and planted it in his garden. His family was suddenly plagued with a wave of illness until the man unearthed the plants and burned them. Intruders who have removed bricks as keepsakes have suffered from car accidents and other maladies, blamed on an alleged hex. Locals believe the artifacts have been cursed by the previous occupants who toiled to construct their dream home. Tales of various sights and sounds have been reported by sightseers and paranormal investigators over the past two decades. Mysterious shadows and apparitions wander the forest, allegedly the spirits of both Charles and Joseph. Gunshots echo among the prominent peaks, accompanied by the sound of shattering glass, replaying the horrifying events of that fateful night. The glowing eyes of Beelzebub, one of Scudder's English mastiffs, have been witnessed in the darkness of the woods late at night. His barks are heard where no living souls dwell. The intoxicating melody played by Charles Golden Harp has been reported drifting down from the hills. That was an excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers and read by Robert M. Clark, and it's out now in paperback and audiobook from Lathay Press. Ken Summers is a paranormal historian, writer, and Fortean researcher. He was born and raised in Northeast Ohio. He's always held a strong interest in ghosts and unexplained phenomena. 
Over the last 18 years, Ken has researched and investigated countless local hauntings and strange historical incidents. He has appeared on WWS, Fox 8 and WOIO in conjunction with new stories dealing with local ghosts, and has been featured in both Cleveland Scene Magazine and the Akron Beacon Journal. Ken served as treasurer and vice president of LGBU Kent, now Pride Kent, at Kent State University in the late 1990s. As an out-gay paranormal investigator, he began questioning the existence of queer ghosts after an encounter with the apparition of a friend who committed suicide in 2002. What began as a series of blog posts about LGBT ghosts became the book Queer Hauntings in 2009. Ken is currently a ticket agent for a scenic railroad and senior editor for Week in Weird. He lives in Northeast Ohio. He's always on the hunt for other LGBT ghost stories, so if you have any leads or stories, he'd love to hear them. Please do get in touch at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of An Earful of Queer. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please do subscribe, follow us, whatever the appropriate button is uh, for wherever you're listening to this. Uh, And check back next month when we return with another guest. Uh, you can find out all about our upcoming guests on our website at anearfulofqueer.weebly.com uh, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and if you have questions that you'd like to submit to our guests, then please do send us them. We'd love to feature them. Uh, it takes the pressure off me. means I have to invent less questions and it means that you get to be involved as well. Uh, the website will also have details of where you can find out more about the musician that we featured on the show today. And uh, whilst we're on the subject of music, we need to give a shout out to Purple Planet, who provided all of our theme and incidental music on the show. They're a really great resource, and uh, you should definitely go check them out. I've been Matthew Bright, and if for whatever crazy reason you've finished this episode more interested in me than my guest, uh, then firstly, I'm probably not doing things right, but never mind. <laughs> uh, you can find out more about me at my website, which is Matthew with two T's Bright.com or on Twitter, uh, which is at mbrightwriter. Uh, when I'm not making a fool of myself on podcasts, I do occasionally write and edit things, um, and there's all sorts of stuff that you can find out about that on the website. Uh, <laughs> do forgive my awkwardness, I'm British. Uh, we don't do self-promotion very well. So all that remains for me now is to say thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Next time.